This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled The Feminine Face of Mysticism, recorded July 31st, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So as I said, I'm going to respond to a question that was left in the question box, and here's the question. My question is about the introduction into Vedic and other writings of sacred traditions of rejection of the feminine. Where did it come from and why? What does it mean in context of mystical comprehension of life or God? And it's signed Sylvia. If you uh, want to be anonymous, you have to write here that you don't want your name mentioned, but she didn't, so you get outed. That's the default position. And then she's a little P.S. as an example is the story of the Garden of Eden and blaming Eve for all our troubles. So I think it's first of all true, as we all know, that uh, many religious traditions do have negative views of the feminine. There is the Garden of Eden story. Uh, I know there's uh, some monasteries, at least in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's one at least on an island someplace in the Aegean Sea, and they won't even let female animals onto the island. So, uh, I believe that Orthodox Jews, uh, one of the prayers that men have to say every day includes a phrase about thanking God that they weren't born a woman. And uh, I know there's some Hindu holy men who are not allowed to even see a woman. And there was a story uh, about 10 years ago, I think it was, about the Portland airport that this Indian sadhu or something was coming to town and he wasn't supposed to even see a woman. So they were making special arrangements to get him off the plane on a little side door and then whisk him away in a car before he could see any women. And a gang of feminists went down there and whipped off their bras and danced in front of them. Yes, right. Welcome to America. So I'm sure that totally corrupted him at that point. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I just fell off his path, fell back into samsara. It's terrible. <laughs> anyway, I must tell you, Sylvia, I don't have a, a really good answer of why this happens. I'm not an expert on any of the fields that you might turn to to try to find an answer. I think that if you looked at different fields, you actually would probably find a bunch of different answers. So if you read uh, historians, I'm sure there's some historians who will give you an historical answer of why it developed this way. Uh, I'm sure there's psychologists who would give you a psychological answer, uh, sociologists who would talk about you know, the structure of the societies and things like that and give you an answer. And they'd all be good answers, you know, and they'd all uh, put together, give you some sort of picture of what's going on. I always appreciate having that sort of information. I personally, think that probably at least one aspect of it at root is a kind of fear. Uh, a fear that ranges from perhaps a kind of reasonable fear that could work both ways, that uh, when you're doing spiritual practice, sometimes being in the presence of the opposite sex can be a distraction. But that wouldn't be just a male thing, it would work both ways. And doesn't ever happen at our retreats, but some retreats, there's the phenomenon known as retreat romances, where people come and go on retreat, and then they see somebody across the room who's sort of attractive, and then a little flirtation develops and whatnot. So there can be a rational basis to that, but I also think it probably has a deeper, more irrational basis of fear of feminine power or mystery or something like that. But I do think it's important 
to remember the distinction that we make here at the center between the exoteric religious traditions and the esoteric mystical currents that run through them. And that I can talk something about. And part of your question was about how this uh, relates to how mystics see life and so forth. And I think that it's fair to say that many mystics have recognized the spiritual equality of women practitioners. Not necessarily the social equality, but that men and women are equal spiritually. And not all, by any means, and I'm sure you can find mystical teachers and mystical texts that even though they're mystical, still have disparaging things to say about women. But I think it's fair to say that a surprising number of mystics have been quite modern in their attitude about women, and surprising because given the patriarchal nature of virtually all these societies, the social structure of the societies, and the general attitudes towards women in these societies. One example, for instance, is Plato, who was uh, the founding mystic of the whole Western mystic tradition, even influencing Judaism and Islam and Christianity, certainly. There were mystics before him, but he's sort of the first one that we really have complete records of. And he wrote a book called The Republic, which was his description of an ideal city. And this ideal city reflects an ideal spiritual development in society. So it's not really meant to be a modern sort of socialist utopian, but it is reflecting spiritual values in his terms. And in his Greek society at the time, uh, women were chattel. I mean, they virtually had no place in public life. But here's what he says. He says, No practice or calling in the life of the city belongs to woman as woman, or to man as man. By nature, the woman has a share in all practices, and so has man. But in all, woman is rather weaker physically than man. But both woman and man may have the same nature fit for guarding the city, which is the highest thing to guard the city, is the, the philosopher kings who are going to run the city. So he's saying basically that in general, women are physically weaker than men, but there's nothing they can't do that men can do. And this is quite startling for that time to have that sort of attitude. Uh, Here's the great Sufi, Ibn Arabi, and he's writing about levels of sainthood. I don't know actually what the Arabic word is, but it's progressions, not so much saint in our Western sense, but progressions of a mystic in terms of realizing a union with the divine. And he says, each category that we speak of contains both men and women. There is no spiritual quality belonging to men to which women may not have equal access. Men and women have a part to play at all levels, including the level of the pole, which in his terms is the highest level of enlightenment. And not only enlightenment, but being the pole, the guiding teacher for a whole era. And so women are perfectly capable of doing that too. Now this is 13th century in Spain and North Africa and Arabia. So this is, again, quite startling, given the Islamic context of his society. Here's Zen master Dogen. He was... 14th century Japan, I think. He says, In understanding Buddha Dharma, men and women, noble and common people, are not to be distinguished. So the path of Zen is open to them equally. And then Padmasambhava, who's the at least legendary founder of Buddhism in Tibet, he's the one who supposedly brought Buddhism from India to Tibet, 
uh, he went so far as to say this. This is very interesting. The human body is the basis of the accomplishment of wisdom, and the gross bodies of men and women are equally suited. But if a woman has strong aspiration, she has higher potential. So he's even giving a nod to the women. And, you know, this is interesting because uh, Tibetan tradition and Buddhism in general, at least the Mahayana Buddhism, I think has recognized the spiritual equality of women uh, in principle. In practice, however, of course, you know, most of the great teachers are men. Most of the great uh, paintings and stuff are showing male Buddhas. Uh, in Tibetan tradition, if they show women, they're usually the consorts of the men, you know, and uh, so forth. And there was a conference of Buddhist teachers. And again, this was about 10 years ago, I think. I'm not quite sure where I heard about it. But at one point, a Western woman got up, and this is oh, the conference was being uh, facilitated by the Dalai Lama. So this Western woman teacher got up, and she was explaining how everybody pays lip service to the equality of women in Buddhist traditions. But if you go into a Buddhist temple, you know, you see nothing but men, 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 men. And the texts are almost all written by men. And the teachers that you have are almost all men. And so she invited everybody to, in their minds, reverse this. Supposing you were a man, and you were in an organization where all the pictures were of women, all the texts were of women, all the teachers were women, and so forth. And apparently the Dalai Lama was very moved by this and made a vow right there to uh, clean up Buddhism's acts, so to speak, and start walking their talk about the equality of women. So I think things are changing, but there's no doubt that, you know, all these traditions, uh, all these major ones anyway, were all very patriarchal. But then many mystics, both male and female, by the way, had female archetypal gods. In different traditions, a lot of different names for them. It might be an angel appearing to you. It might be a a bodhisattva in disembodied form, uh, some figure in a dream, some guide that appears to you that is not a, a human guide. And many mystics have had archetypal guides appearing to them in dreams or visions and so forth. And a great number of them have been women guides. Here's a report about Longchenpa, who was a great Tibetan master. And he, as a young man, had this vision in a retreat that he was on. He saw a beautiful 16-year-old woman, attired in brocade, ornamented with gold and turquoise, and wearing a golden veil over her face. She was riding a horse with leather saddle and bells. He held on to the end of her dress and prayed, O noble lady, please accept me with your kindness. She put her crown of precious jewels on his head and said, From now on I shall always bestow my blessings upon you and grant you powers. And as the text explains, she's an incarnation of Tara, a very famous Tibetan goddess figure. Here's a dream of Rabia, whom I mentioned earlier, who was one of the great Sufi uh, masters. And this is a dream she had of a young girl who comes to her. And it's a rather complicated dream. The young girl uh, takes her to this castle and these ceremonies are performed. But the young girl tells her, your prayers are your light. Your devotion is your strength. Sleep is the enemy of both. Your life is the only opportunity that life can give you. If you ignore it, if you waste it, you will only turn to dust. 
So she's getting a teaching through this dream, and it's coming from a female archetypal guide. And here's the Hasidic master, Isaac Safran, and he gives this account of a dream that he had. And I wept many times before the Lord of the world, and I fell asleep for a while, and I saw a vision of light, splendor, and great brightness in the image of a young woman adorned with 24 ornaments. And she said, be strong, my son, and so on and so forth. So he's getting the same kind of advice. Notice these women are all adorned and they're accompanied by a light and the images that go with this are quite similar. This is why we call them archetypes. Here's one more by a little-known contemporary mystic who had a dream about climbing a mountain. And then he says, I look out over a breathtaking landscape spread at my feet. The seven continents and seven seas extend before my eyes to a 360-degree horizon. Both the sun and the moon are simultaneously visible in the sky, one half of which is night, the other day, and a sacred hush envelops the world. Suddenly I become aware of a woman standing at my side, wearing a helmet. She hands me a sword and says, This sword is as bright as the moon and as sharp as the stars, and with it you can cut through the heart of truth. I take the sword and hold it in the palm of my hand, and it feels powerful and good. Then I turn to the woman and ask, Who are you? Don't you know, she laughs gently, I am Athena, and I've been with you always. So here's samples of this visitation by an archetypal woman. Now from a Jungian point of view, you might go so far as to say this is the same woman guide appearing in all these different forms, suitable for the person who's receiving the vision. But that's a different story here. Then many mystics have conceived of God actually in female form. If we need to give God a form, of course, the most common thing is male all over the world, but there certainly have been female visions of this. Here's Lao Tzu, who's the founder of Chinese Taoism, and he says, The gateway of the mysterious female is called the root of heaven and earth. So what's even before heaven and earth? What's the ground of all this? And he identifies it as female. In India, ultimate reality is Brahman, and Brahman is uh, sexually neuter. Brahman isn't male or female. And so Brahman manifests to various devotees in form of uh, gods or goddesses. And there are many goddesses in uh, India, to name just a few, Kali and Durga and Radha, and Shakti, and they're usually associated then with various Hindu sects. But they're usually recognized all to be manifestations of this ultimate sexless reality. And then many, both male and female practitioners and saints and mystics in India have been devotees of goddesses. Uh, Ramana Krishna, who was a very great Hindu mystic of the 19th century, was responsible for reviving a lot of Hindu mysticism, was a devotee of the Divine Mother. And actually, often these goddesses, the various names of the goddesses, are seen as manifestations of something more general, just the Divine Mother. Uh, Sometimes mystics themselves are incarnations of the Divine Mother, like uh, Amma is considered an incarnation of the Divine Mother. She's a contemporary Hindu teacher. So that's very common in India. 
Uh, Christianity, of course, has never had an official feminine face of God. There's the Trinity, and they're all male. Although, you know, theologians will tell you God is basically sexless, but the forms that are given are all male. But during the Middle Ages in Christendom, Mary really became a goddess figure, and Protestantism rejected that, and so we don't really have that much left in at least Protestant Christianity. But she was the queen who reigned in heaven. She was the Theodicus, the mother of God, and she was actually often worshipped more than any of the male figures to the point where the church got worried about this, that they were elevating her to the status of a goddess because she seemed more accessible. The father was too remote. The son, for a while, became um, associated with judgment. He was the one who judged things. And so Mary was the intercessor with her son. You'd pray to Mary to go talk to her son and straighten things out. So she (laughs) couldn't talk to him directly. And then finally, it's interesting, even in Judaism, whose conception of God historically is extremely masculine, the exoteric conception of God. But the Kabbalists, who are the mystics of Judaism, developed a different complementary conception of God that was feminine. And the seminal work that came out of the uh, Kabbalist movement in the Middle Ages, the Zohar, developed this whole idea of the Shekinah. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And the Shekinah is the feminine aspect of God and extremely important for Kabbalist mystics. And here's the scholar Gershom Sholem explains why. In the symbolic world of the Zohar, this new conception of the Shekinah as the symbol of eternal womanhood occupies a place of immense importance. It marks the sphere which is first to open itself to the meditation of the mystic, the entrance to the inwardness of God which discloses its secret only to those who approach it in the spirit of complete devotion. And then later, the Shekinah became identified with the indwelling God. So Elohim or Adonai was the transcendent God, and the Shekinah was the indwelling God. So for the Kabbalists, it was very much of a balance. And there's a lot of imagery in Kabbalism that's sexual imagery associated with God, the male aspect and the female aspect and the unity of the two and so forth. And then many mystics in these traditions saw themselves as female in relation to the divine, even if they were male, regardless of their physical gender, that's how they viewed themselves. So here's the Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum, and he writes, We, the children of Israel, are women in our relationship with God. We rouse ourselves from below to cling to him. Then do we awaken in him, as it were, a desire to extend to us his flow of all goodness. And again, there's a lot of sexual imagery involved with this, where just as a woman receives the influx from her lover or husband, so a mystic receives divine influxes from the divine beloved, insights and experiences and things like that. Some of it is actually so uh, racy that you couldn't read it on primetime television. (laughs) And likewise, in Christian mysticism, there's this imagery that lots of mystics use of the bride and the bridegroom. The, The soul is the bride, is feminine, and Christ is the bridegroom, and the soul is waiting for the bridegroom to come to the the bridal chamber. And again, there's some very erotic imagery, beautiful imagery of that. 
And then here's Lao Tzu, the Taoist, and he asked this question. When the gates of heaven open and shut, are you capable of keeping to the role of the female? When your discernment penetrates to the four quarters, are you capable of not knowing anything? And this business of the gates of heaven opening and shutting, this is an image in Taoism for the arising and return of all the phenomena, all our experiences come out of the Tao and return to the Tao. And part of the practice of Taoism is to observe how the myriad creatures arise and where they return to. Because we can't see the Tao. It's formless. It's the ground of all things. So how do we find it? Well, where does everything come from and where does it go to? So if we watch a sensation or a sound or a thought, anything arises and where does it go to? And if you have developed attention through the kind of meditation we did earlier, where you can watch without being distracted and carried away by thought, you can watch even a thought, it arises and where does it go? And it's taking you right to that ground, the Tao. So he's saying, can you stick to the role of a female here? That means, in his terms, not interfering, being receptive, just observing not having to control and and manipulate and do anything, but just being observant. And, you know, this identification of the mystic with the feminine, let's face it, comes from the way females were regarded in these patriarchal societies. They were regarded as being generally sexually receptive and socially obedient. And so... These are qualities that you need, not the sexual or the social part, but the the receptivity and the obedience. These are qualities you need on a spiritual path. And you need these qualities regardless of what's going on in the society. In a matriarchal society, if men were considered to be sexually receptive and socially obedient, then everybody would want to be a male. So they're choosing this imagery from the facts of their society. But the qualities themselves are extremely important. Receptivity and obedience. This is one whole aspect of of a spiritual path. It's very important, however, to keep in mind it is not obedient and receptive to human authority. It is obedient and receptive to divine authority, if we want to put it that way. And this is extremely important. And we can see this reflected in the lives of many of the women mystics. And that's the other thing about mystics in these traditions, is they have produced many powerful women practitioners and Gnostics, fully accomplished uh, mystics who have realized the truth. More so than you would think just looking at the societies and the opportunities open to women in these societies, which in some cases were extremely narrow, but nevertheless, a powerful teacher is a powerful teacher. It's hard to put the bushel over that light, you know, shines. So just to name a few that I'm most familiar with, uh, Mirabai and Lali Shori were two very influential mystics in the Hindu tradition. Uh, Rabia, who I already mentioned, who was an early Sufi, and she's quoted by mystics of many different orders. So she was almost one of the founders of Sufism in that sense. And she transcends the 
particular schools that develop. And they, you know, have differences. Some schools use music in their practices, some frown on it, so they're, you know, different things. But they all look to Rabia, basically, as one of the great early mystics of uh, Sufism. Machig Labdron, Tibetan mystic, who was, if not the founder or the inventor of this practice called Chud, cutting through, was at least one of the major practitioners and this is considered one of the most powerful practices in all of Tibetan Buddhism. And she was a master of the early formation of that practice. And then there's uh, Teresa Avila. There are many, many Christian mystic women. Uh, but Teresa Avila was not only a very astute spiritual psychologist, and this book, Interior Castles, she goes into how you can tell the difference between ego fantasies and actual true spiritual experiences and so forth. But she herself was a mentor to John of the Cross, who became himself a very famous Christian mystic. And through them, they established one of the few really unbroken lineages in Christianity. So today we have Carmelites who look to uh, Teresa and John as the founders of their lineage, so to speak. So these are just a few of women mystics, and you can check out our library and all the sections. You'll find women mystics, and you can talk to the librarians if you want further advice about that. And these women mystics were neither socially obedient or sexually receptive for the most part. <laughs> they were celibate for the most part and they were rebellious socially. And in their biographies and autobiographies, uh, one very common thread that runs through that is they had to defy their families, their uh, societies, and so forth, to go on a spiritual path. It was frowned on that women were supposed to get married and bring up children and do this and that. They weren't supposed to be off there doing spiritual practices. This is true both in the East and the West. So a lot of these stories are about how they had to defy their husbands. And a very common one in India is they come from a poor family and their parents want them to marry some prince who's taken interest in them because it's going to uplift the whole status of the family. So as dutiful daughters, they agree to marry the prince or the nobleman or whatever, but they have conditions, three conditions, that they're going to be able to see their gurus whenever they want, that they won't be interrupted by their husbands at the time of devotion and practices, and I don't know what the third one is, that they can read their texts or whatever. And then as the story goes, of course, the husband violates all three of the conditions eventually, you know, and so that's it. Now she's free. Now she can take off and she hits the road and becomes a sadhu or a seeker and so forth. So it's a very common theme. I think this attitude is summed up very well by a Hindu mystic, Mahadevi. And here's what she says. Now she's a worshiper of Krishna. She says, I have fallen in love with a beautiful one who is without any family, without any country, and without any peer. Krishna, the beautiful, is my husband. Fling into the fire of sati those husbands who are subject to death and decay. The fire of sati is the funeral fire in traditional uh, Indian society. When uh, a man died, then his wife was supposed to throw herself on the funeral pyre and go on with him. And so she sings, these physical husbands are worthless. They're subject to death and decay. Throw them on the funeral pyre. She's married to God, so... And then, even uh, female mystics who have been sexually active, and there have been some, and particularly in the Tibetan 
and North Indian tradition where there is a legitimate sexual practice of Tantra. It's not what you'll read about in popular bookstores when you get those you know, big glossy books with those pictures of uh, white Westerners in all sorts of contorted positions. And it's a very, very difficult practice and you have to do years of preparatory practice beforehand and so forth, but it is legitimate. Anyway, one story about Lady Soigel, who was not only the consort of Padmasambhava, who, as I mentioned, was the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, but she was a great teacher and practitioner on her own, and on her path at one point, when she was ready to do these tantric practices, as the story goes, she went down to the marketplace and bought herself a slave boy and took him up to the caves with her to do these sexual practices. So they have not been meek women in general, these, these women mystics. Meek before the divine, as everyone has to be, but not meek socially. So I've just touched on some of the ways mystics have seen women, some of the metaphors they've used, some of the views they've had, the way they've conceived of the divine in relation to women and themselves and so forth. I think we can call this the feminine face of mysticism. But it is also important to understand that for mysticism, ultimately, ultimately, gender is irrelevant. It's relevant socially, it's relevant relatively, it's relevant to various situations. If you're a woman trying to be a practitioner in a Buddhist community that's male-dominated, it'll be relevant. But ultimately, it's irrelevant. Ultimately, it's irrelevant because the ultimate reality itself is non-dual. And it transcends all these distinctions, including the distinction of gender. So male, female... The ultimate reality is beyond all that. And in order to realize that that ultimate reality is our own true nature, which is what the mystics testify to, but we have to realize it for ourselves. In order to realize that, we ourselves have to ultimately get beyond these various distinctions. We have to disidentify with who we think we are as limited embodied beings in order to discover who we truly are from mystic's point of view. And this means not only disidentifying with a particular body, which biologically is going to be either or in 99.9% cases, but perhaps more importantly and more profoundly, it's to disidentify with that mental and emotional eye that stars in the soap opera that runs through our heads all day long. And if you stop to think about how important our gender identification is in that story, you'll see that it's quite profound process to realize that isn't you. How much of our lives have been uh, taken up with considerations about how attractive we appear, But even more than that, our roles in life as men or women, our self-image as male or female. You know, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in New York. And this is when the roles of men and women were more well-defined in this culture than they are today. And you had to work at being a, a man. It wasn't easy. There was a role you had to model yourself after, you know. I don't have a shirt with a collar. You had to wear your collar up and your sleeves like this. You had to smoke a cigarette. You had to be a tough guy in my neighborhood, you know. Uh, none of this vulnerability shit. I mean, excuse my French. 
So this is something that society helps to train us for, and we internalize it and all that. So we shouldn't poo-poo the problem here. And it's not that we shouldn't have roles, and we shouldn't recognize roles, and we shouldn't be willing to play roles. It's just that at a very deep, profound level, we have to recognize we aren't that, ultimately. We are not one particular role. And that's the key to freedom. Because when you're not one particular role, you can play what role's appropriate to what situation, and you can throw yourself into it fully. And so then even a kid from a tough Italian neighborhood can let down his guard when it's appropriate to, or whatever else is called for. So that's the freedom that comes from this disidentification with the role. And the ultimate disidentification is to realize who you truly are. And that is really beyond words. So let me leave you with some uh, advice from Machik Labdron. And she sums up the mystical path this way. And she says, Supreme view is beyond all duality of subject and object. Supreme meditation is without distraction. Supreme activity is action without effort. Supreme fruition is without hope and fear. If you realize this, enlightenment is attained. And then she says, This old lady has no instructions more profound than this to give you. So I hope you all take her instructions to heart. So, does anybody have any comments? Uh, Yes. Do, do the mystics believe that even though there, if we just you know, get away from the eye, that there is any sort of personal identity at all when you're enlightened? I mean, is there a... a, a I, I don't even know how to explain it. Is there... Like you're separate from all the other non-eyes? Or, <laughs> or are you just melding into one big uh, unit as you're enlightened? No, you're not melding into one big unit. Now, let's stop here for a minute. Because mystics are not talking about what is going to happen when you're enlightened. Mystics are trying to talk about the nature of reality right now. So you don't have to do anything, really. You don't have to meld into one big unit or anything like that. Right now, the I you think you are does not exist except as an ongoing creation of imagination. Very much like Hamlet at least as far as we know. There was never any historical Prince Hamlet. But there's Hamlet, right? You could go see a movie of Hamlet or a play. You could afterwards go out with your friends to a coffee shop. You could talk about Hamlet. You could talk about his motivation. If you go to the library, there are literally hundreds of books written about Hamlet. And a lot of them analyze his character and, you know, there's psychoanalytic views of him. He doesn't exist. (laughs) So... It's not denying that our minds create a game where there are characters and they interact, and you know what I mean? But the trouble is, something happens in this process and we cease to recognize the truth of what's going on and we start to believe that this creation of the imagination is real at a level that it isn't. So it'd be like if you were in a theater watching Hamlet and at the end of Hamlet, 
you know, about six people are killed on stage. I mean, one after another, duels and they're poisoned and they're dropping dead. Well, if you are watching that and suddenly you lose track of the fact you're in a theater and you're watching actors and all that, and you think people are actually being stabbed to death in front of you, then your enjoyment of the play, which will include a, a reaction of horror, but you still enjoy the play, will turn to true horror and you won't be enjoying the play anymore. And so what mystics say is that's the predicament we're caught in, or that's the situation we're caught in. We've been fooled somehow. And it's a very subtle thing to describe. That's why the terms for enlightenment are like to realize, to recognize is a really good one. It means to recognize what you used to know and you've forgotten in a certain sense. And it's not learning a new theory or a new idea or nothing's happening. It's just what is the truth, the truth of what's going on right now. So one of the things that spiritual practices will do is to start to dismantle this very rigid way we have of experiencing ourselves in the world. And that starts to break down a little bit. And then we start to have all sorts of different experiences, different ways of experiencing the world. But ultimately, mysticism isn't about finding the right way to experience the world. It's to find that you are that space in which all these experiences arise and that space that isn't bound by any particular experience. So, yes, you'll read mystics, and they'll talk about dissolving the ego, and they'll talk about things like that. But the ultimate truth is not arriving someplace that you aren't right here and now. Thank you. Somebody else had their hand up. Yes. What exactly distinguishes a mystic? Is it someone who has been enlightened and is a teacher? No. First of all, I have to say, I have my own definitions of a mystic and Gnostic and things like that. So the way I use these terms is this. I use the term mystic as anyone who's not necessarily been on a mystical path, but usually been on a mystical path and done some practices, but who has had at least a glimpse of the ultimate nature of reality what I call a Gnostic flash or a Gnostic episode. So I would call that person a mystic. Well, isn't that being awakened? I mean, isn't that the same thing as being awakened? Well, let me go on a minute here. But then it is possible to have a Gnostic flash and yet the old identity returns. And so there is a moment of awakening of seeing, but it is not what I would then call a full gnosis. So it's a glimpse, but it isn't the end of the path. So I would call a Gnostic someone who's fully awakened, and that's it. So there's no more returning, if you want to use Buddhist terms or whatever. So a mystic is the general category. So a Gnostic is a mystic, but a mystic isn't necessarily a full-fledged Gnostic. Okay. You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. So uh, that's the way I use these terms. So. Okay. Yeah. Um. In, in thinking about and keeping in mind that ultimate reality is beyond gender distinctions, do you have any advice for working with um, the biological drives that we have that seem to really um, uh, keep, you know, keep that story going about um, that, that's gender related? The, the biological drives seem to really just, you know, capture my thoughts and you know, that's just really, really strong. Yes, and that's one reason that sex occupies such a unusual place within mystical practices and traditions. 
Greed is something that you have to deal with and anger, but lust and sex have a particular strength. And they have a particular strength because in a certain sense, sex at its best mimics at a physical level, you might say, a spiritual enlightenment, or it has the potential to, do you know what I mean? When we completely give ourselves physically to sex and in great sex, we have a moment of losing track of self and the boundary of I and other, and we have this tremendous bliss. So in a certain sense, it's more dangerous because it's easier to mistake that for, for enlightenment. It's easier to just be completely enthralled with that. Whereas for most people anyway, I think this is true. Money is good to have. We have a lot of money and all that, but we know money isn't enlightenment, you know? So this has occupied this place. And what you do with sex, I mean, in terms of the relative level, is pretty up in the air right now with our culture and what's going on. And one of the things that is changed in our time is the Industrial Revolution, which gave women, a, allowed them to make a living, an independent living in the, in the world, and birth control, reliable birth control. So this has freed women. And one of the reasons that there were very restrictive sexual um, restrictions in most of these societies really wasn't about keeping women down and things like that. It was about the children. In pre-industrial societies, if you engaged in a lot of sex, you're bound to get pregnant. And then you're going to be bringing up kids in a society where you have no way of supporting them. Because, you know, you can't run a farm by yourself as a single woman. And, uh, and that's what most people were, farmers and so forth. You couldn't get into any of the professions. You couldn't be a warrior. You couldn't wear all that heavy armor. So anyway, things have changed. And that means we have to change. And that means our sexual morality has to change. We're never going to put the genie back in the bottle. The genie's out, you know. So how are we going to deal with it now? So I think we have to focus on what causes suffering? And a lot of the old things still cause suffering. Jealousy, unfaithfulness, and all that. So we have the choice if we're responsible. We can wait and have kids when we can have a reasonable chance of bringing them up in a reasonable way and so forth. But in the meantime in all this, we have to be very careful and much more subtle and much more astute about not hurting each other with sex. And I think that's the basis of modern sexual morality. Now, that's the relative level. Beyond that, there are two choices you have in a walking mystical path. And one of them is still today celibacy. And it's not a bad choice. And it might not be a lifelong commitment to celibacy. It might be a short-term one. But you just say, right now, my priority is going on a spiritual path. So for now, romance is out. And I don't mean just sex, but dating and, you know, relationships of that sort and all that. Because it is extremely distracting. Uh, that's, I think, very suitable still, even though most people today don't want to do it. But uh, the harder choice, the harder choice is to continue to engage in a full range of relationships. But then you train yourself to be mindful. And it's through that mindfulness that you then not give up sex, but you begin to see that sex is never going to make you ultimately happy. You can say that until the cows come home. It won't affect you when the hormones are running, you know what I mean? But to see it in the moment is what convinces us that as wonderful as it can be, it's impermanent like anything else. It's impermanent. 
And when we can see that, then sex starts to assume its normal, natural place in our lives. It's an important part of human life and all that. But it gets demystified in that sense. It isn't the thing that's going to make me happy. And all the, the myths that go with that, that our culture fosters so strongly, you know, when Mrs. or Mr. Wright comes along and riding off in the sunset and all that. So it's the observation. Go ahead, continue what you're doing, but just watch and see, does this really make me happy? And much simpler level, maybe it's better to start that way. You can apply the same thing to some little candy or something that you eat as a treat. You like Hershey bars? Okay, don't stop eating Hershey bars. Eat the Hershey bar. Watch how the taste, oh, it's strong in the mouth. Well, very carefully. And then it evaporates. You need another bite because you don't want to let that go. You need another bite, you know what I mean? Then the candy bar is gone. And either two <laughs> things, you still need more candy bars. And you can keep going as an experiment, as a spiritual experiment, until it all turns around and you're sick and you're puking. Uh, or you can just stop when you're satisfied and then just continue to be mindful. See how long that satisfaction lasts. Five minutes, if you're lucky. Ten, maybe, you know. So it's through this that we begin to see, okay, so none of this is going to make me happy. It doesn't mean it's evil, and that's part of that problem, you know, just because it doesn't make you ultimately happy doesn't mean it's evil. So that's another way to go. All right, well, till we see you again, peace to you all. <laughs>